Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.18, William Penn and the Founding of Pennsylvania. Having spent the last several weeks in New England for King Philip's War, we are now going to take a quick detour before we head back to Massachusetts and New England to discuss the upcoming Dominion of New England. Before we can do that, however, we need to move back down to the south and bring a new colony into our game, namely Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is quickly going to become a center for many of the events we are going to see happen on the build-up to the revolution. In fact, it will be Philadelphia that is going to act as the colonial capital come 1775. However, all of that is way off in our future, and this week we are going to bring Pennsylvania into the podcast. Before moving forward, however, I do want to point out a couple things that should hopefully help explain the structure of this episode. Originally, this episode had been written as a biography edition episode on William Penn. However, I realized afterwards that Penn is so deeply tied to the story that doing a biography edition on him and then going back to do an introduction to Pennsylvania is just going to become repetitive. You just cannot separate the two from each other. William Penn is Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is William Penn. To deal with this problem, I have decided to just add in some extra information into this episode that will help fill in the blanks of his life. The practical effect of this is this week we are going to get a whole lot of information about William Penn. However, if you are wondering where the biography editions have been so far this season, you are listening to it. So, without further delay, let's jump in and look at the life of William Penn. The man who would become so synonymous with Pennsylvania, William Penn, was born on October the 14th, 1645. Born in Tower Hill on the outskirts of London, young William was born into one of the most well-known families in all of England. The Penn family history is, well, muddy at times, one that can be traced back to the Norman Conquest of 1066. William Penn was born into a turbulent time in England, right in the middle of the English Civil Wars. His father, William Penn Sr., was an admiral in the English Navy who would often tow the line between the sides. This would end up being a real boon to the Penn family, as the elder William Penn had a knack for picking the winning side. Fighting in the Civil War against Charles I and for Parliament meant that when Charles I was beheaded, the Penns remained in good standing. Penn would again choose correctly years later, when it became clear that Richard Cromwell was not his father and that the protectorate was doomed. Penn played an active role in supporting the Restoration, and when Charles II took his throne, William Penn Sr. managed to remain, if not on the inside circle, certainly not excluded entirely. William Penn Sr. would ultimately end up being elected to the House of Commons in 1660. As for the younger Penn, not a lot is known about his childhood. Certainly, he would have grown up with privilege. Likewise, we know that from a very young age, Penn was often described as being an extremely pious child. William Penn would, of course, become best known as being a devout Quaker later in life. However, his transformation into this position is a little bit less clear-cut than one might think. His family was not Quakers, thus limiting the amount of early exposure that Penn would have had to the Society of Friends. We do know, however, that it was around the time that Penn was 13 that his family hosted Thomas Lowe. Lowe was a Quaker minister and would ultimately be the first person to introduce William Penn to the religious sect that would so completely color his life. As a young man of noble roots, Penn's father enrolled him in the Christ Church School at Oxford, 
the most prestigious of the university's colleges. Christchurch was a popular school amongst the powerful in England and often did serve as a stepping stone into government positions. The university was traditionally Anglican in nature and became one of the few institutions fighting to retain the traditional Church of England during the Civil War, and then especially during the Puritan control years during the Protectorate. Penn was, by all accounts, something of an odd fit at Oxford, and he would ultimately describe those years as some of the worst of his life. Penn faced a two-part problem here. The first one is very human in nature. As may not come as a surprise to you, often teenagers are not described as being the bastions of piety. Teenagers then, as they do now, rebel. They get in trouble and they push boundaries. William Penn, however, was none of these things. Penn was, by just about everybody's account, considered to be incredibly pious. Now, this is purely conjecture. However, it is worth noting that as a young child, Penn came down with smallpox. As a result, Penn's hair was destroyed. Even as a child, William Penn was totally bald. It is impossible not to consider how that might have affected the young man's self-confidence. The second problem was societal in nature during this time. Anglicanism, which was the dominantly preached religion at Christchurch, was only hanging on by a thread at this point. This weak adherence did absolutely nothing to sway the more religiously invested pen more towards the established religious dogma of the Anglican Church. In fact, it would be Penn's move away from the Anglican Church that would open up so many opportunities, not just that would change his life, but would change the trajectory of the North American colonies in general. William Penn's time at Oxford was short. Though we don't really know the exact reason why, we do know that Penn failed to graduate. Penn always claimed that he was expelled for illicit writing that challenged the college's priests. And this does fit with his later narrative as a rabble-rouser and an outspoken critic of the established English church and a defender of the Quakers. However, as for the specifics of the writing itself, we have no evidence of what it was or if it even existed at all. Following his exit from Oxford, Penn embarked on a tour of Europe, which was a common thing during the era. Following the grand tour, Penn would give another try to formal schooling, enrolling in Lincoln's Inn. Lincoln's Inn was one of the four major inns in England where those wishing to read the law would study. Again, however, Penn would not complete his studies there following an outbreak of the plague in London, plus his father setting off on the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Penn was forced again to withdraw. However, the events of the Second Anglo-Dutch War would have some long-lasting important advantages for the young Penn. While his father was off fighting for the Stuarts this time in the Anglo-Dutch War, he would manage to do a lot of goodwill and closely link the families. This connection between the Stuarts and the Penns is going to do much to explain how a religious dissident like William Penn so often managed to get out of otherwise tenuous situations and ultimately would be given a massive land grant in North America. As for the younger Penn, it was during those years that the most influential moment of his personal life would occur. While on a trip to Ireland to settle some land issues for his father, Penn would officially become a Quaker. We know that nearly immediately after joining, Penn was quickly an outspoken member of the group. By the end of 1667, as it turns out, Penn was in jail in Ireland. While little is known about how Penn ended up becoming a Quaker, 
we know that his time in an Irish prison was critical for him. First, his persecution in the prison did much to help solidify his place in the organization. At the same time, it would help send Penn on a lifelong mission of writing in the defense of religious liberty and tolerance. Penn is going to indeed spend the next several years of his life in and out of English jails as a result of his writings and the intermittent persecution of the Quakers. For a noble English family like the Penns, especially one that had grown close to the king in his retinue, the younger William Penn converting to the Quakers was a potentially devastating event. The move would not only be denounced by his father, but ultimately is going to drive a permanent wedge into their relationship. The division between him and his father was even more pronounced than a simple difference of religious tenets. As a Quaker, Penn was to reject the traditional ambitions to rise through the social hierarchy. For a man like William Penn Sr., this is nothing short of his son literally giving up every advantage that he seemingly had been given. Despite this division, however, in his family, William Penn would set out and become an outspoken preacher and advocate for the Society of Friends. What would follow for the next decade is William Penn writing pieces both geared towards explaining Quaker philosophy as well as continuing to push his ideas of religious tolerance. This would lead to his most significant work, No Cross, No Crown, which he partially wrote while imprisoned in the Tower of London. Penn, by this point, had become a critical member of the English Quaker circle and was well-known throughout the nation. Much to his father's, and the Crown's, chagrin, the name Penn meant something. Penn was launched into a position of being a central, very public member of the Society of Friends, a position that he would grow and expand in over the next several years. While Penn's ascension through the ranks of English politics and religion are certainly interesting, the real question for the scope of this show is how did a prominent Englishman with religiously dissident views end up being given a massive land grant in North America? Penn's first involvement into North America came when he was asked to aid a debate over land ownership in New Jersey. During the 1670s, the king was interested in consolidating the colonies as it would better help to secure his tax base. Now, to be clear, this didn't mean that the king had any interest in doing anything that would bring the colonies into unity with each other. That could create a dangerous situation where the colonists could potentially decide that they no longer needed the English crown, and is something that we are going to see resisted up until the French and Indian War. However, what the king was hoping to do here was to reduce the number of small colonies. In other words, the movement was towards larger colonies as opposed to smaller colonies. This is all fine and good in theory. However, it would hit a problem during the 1680s in New Jersey. If you recall from our episode on the New Netherlands transitioning into New York, that the Duke of York had at one time claimed ownership over what would become New Jersey. The Duke of York, however, gave a grant and created the colony of New Jersey. The problem, however, would come when the people who were granted the land decided that they wanted to sell. Following sales in 1673 and again in 1682, the colony of New Jersey was sold to two separate groups of investors who divided the colony. Now, the king was faced with a problem of having two more colonies, East and West Jersey, where he was trying to accomplish the exact opposite. So what does any of that have to do with William Penn? 
Well, it was William Penn that was asked to intervene. The investors who would end up purchasing the land were owned by Scottish interests in what would become East Jersey. East Jersey would not become a Scottish colony and would remain amongst the most diverse colonies in North America. The interest in West Jersey, however, was purchased by Quakers. William Penn, despite his run-ins with authority, was an obvious choice to try to come to an agreement here regarding the functioning of the colony. By this point, Penn had risen up in the ranks amongst the Society of Friends. The young Penn had been befriended personally by George Fox. If this name rings a bell and you can't recall why, the last time we talked about George Fox was back in the first episode this season. Fox was the founder and the leader of the Society of Friends. It shouldn't be surprising that a man like Penn would come to the attention of Fox. Penn was well-connected and had been an outspoken proponent of the rights of the Quakers and religious tolerance. At the end of the day, therefore, you are left with a young man who is both well-connected through his family's name and standing in England, as well as somebody who has become a well-known Quaker. His father had been a deeply respected military leader, and those connections to the top brass of the Quakers made Penn an obvious choice. The primary concern over in West Jersey was over the right to govern the colony. The Duke of York argued that the conveyance of the land was just that and nothing more. It transferred the rights to the land use to the new proprietors. However, what he argued that it did not convey was the government rights. This means that the Quakers were unable to pass laws protecting their religion on the land that they rightfully owned. Ultimately, the Duke of York would end up relenting and would go ahead and grant the right to govern over the property to the Quakers. In consideration of that, William Penn and 11 others would purchase the East Jersey land. Penn would not end up doing much with the land as he was still concerned over the confusing situation with ownership. Rather though, the entire experience made Penn interested in having a brand new colony of his own. Penn turned his attention towards a large, unclaimed area on the other side of the Delaware River. This makes sense for numerous reasons. Among them was the fact that Penn was likely interested in starting a new colony where he was not going to be subject to existing rivalries that existed within the East Jersey sphere. Part of the problem here is that Penn in East Jersey was going to be marginalized to a large extent. In East Jersey, Penn was just one voice amongst 12. No matter what his feelings or plans, he was only going to have so much power within the colony. And beyond that, East Jersey was a hodgepodge of different religions and beliefs, unlike the far more Quaker-leading West Jersey. Had Penn wanted to seek out a colony where Quaker hegemony was going to reign, a place where he and his fellow Quakers would find a sanctuary, East Jersey was not going to be that place. Well, Penn was an advocate of religious tolerance. East Jersey was going to be a tough place to find it, especially if he came in wanting to increase Quaker influence. In addition to this, however, the question becomes even more convoluted when one considers that the Quakers generally viewed persecution as a trial that they must endure. This is why Penn is not seen complaining about the persecutions that he had faced which had him locked up numerous times during his adult life. Trying to find a safe place to practice their religion, such as had been the case with the Puritans during the era of Charles I and William Laud, fits our narrative nicely. However, ultimately is an incorrect explanation, 
This has created a question that historians have and continue to debate about exactly what Penn was hoping to achieve by seeking out a colony. Even after he received his charter, Penn did not seek to uproot those already settled in the lands he had now obtained. Penn instead showed a dedication to the ideals of democracy. As an example, Penn allowed the laws already established in Pennsylvania to continue in effect. We are going to discuss this aspect more when we discuss the frame of the government of Pennsylvania next time. When looking at the motivation behind Penn wanting to break away from the group in East Jersey and form his own colony, we should also consider the more practical reasons why Penn would have wanted to seek out a colony of his own. While it is optimistic to believe that Penn was acting purely out of religious conviction, akin to copying John Winthrop's vision of the city on the hill, though this time for the Quakers, there remains the possibility that Penn was acting because he needed an infusion of cash. In his excellent biography on William Penn, a biography that we have relied heavily on today, Andrew Murphy discusses the fact that Penn was seeking a way to make profit. Murphy quotes the historian Richard Dunn as saying that amongst the biggest motivators for Penn was his desire to salvage the family fortune. Regardless of why Penn wanted a colony, the other side of that coin is why did the crown want to grant it in the first place? The English crown did have a history of sending religious dissidents across the ocean. However, while this plan worked to get the local dissidents out of their hair, it often led to other problems. One need to look no further than New England for a shining example of the dangers of sending dissidents to the American colonies. The Crown had spent a lot of time and energy in attempting to bring New England back into a place where royal prerogative was something more than a mere suggestion. As this entire story is playing out, we are sitting on the verge of the Crown disbanding all of the charters in New England and merging them together as the Dominion of New England, something that we are going to be addressing in a few episodes' time. Therefore, one can sure assume that the last thing the Crown wanted to do was create another pocket of dissenting, unfriendly colonists right in the center of their North American holdings. However, in this specific situation, we again see a shift towards pragmatism rather than anything ideologically driven. During the Anglo-Dutch Wars back during the 1660s, William Penn Sr. had spent a large amount of his own money fighting the war, and now the Stuarts owed him a pretty sizable debt. More specifically, as William Penn Sr. had died in 1670, they owed the debt to his oldest heir, William Penn Jr. The crown during this period was not exactly awash in funds, and a land grant in lieu of paying back the debt might have seemed like a pretty good idea. It would clear a major debt and make sure that another large section of North America was firmly in control of the English. Admittedly, giving the grant to a religious opponent does seem like a dangerous move. However, the information out there is scarce on if this is something that Charles I was really all that concerned about. Penn, for his part, understood the situation and spent much time reassuring the king that he was not granting a charter to another Massachusetts. So, finally, on March the 4th, 1681, Pennsylvania got its charter. Pennsylvania is not named after the William Penn of our story, but rather William Penn Sr. The colony also originally included what is now the state of Delaware. The colonies would initially operate as a single unit. However, by the early part of the 18th century, Delaware had its own assembly that was meeting completely separately of the Pennsylvania Assembly, though both colonies did continue to share a governor up until the Revolution.
it would be easy to believe that William Penn would arrive in Pennsylvania and set up a society like what we saw in New England during the 1630s. More or less a society where the entire government functions around the sphere of religion. Recall those episodes on men like Winthrop. In early Massachusetts, if you weren't religious enough to meet the standards of men like Winthrop, you were likely to end up like Roger Williams or Anne Hutchinson, exiled out to Rhode Island. With the information we have about William Penn, would it really have been that surprising if he took things in the same direction and created a system where adherence to the Society of Friends was going to be a central tenant? Despite any of these fears, however, this is not what William Penn did. In fact, upon first landing in Delaware, his first bit of business was assuring everybody that the transition would be smooth and assured them that their rights would not be violated. There was not going to be any attempt here by the Society of Friends to convert all existing religions in the area to become Quakers. This is an important point because, as we are going to see, there are a lot of people already living in Delaware. The colonists in this region were mostly Dutch and had little interest in changing their religious practices. Almost immediately upon arrival, Penn set forward with the task of creating the structure of the new colony. To complete this task, he called for an assembly to meet at a small town located to the south of the future Philadelphia, which he named Chester. It was in Chester where Penn planned to introduce the first frame of government. We are going to put the frame of government aside for right now, because we are going to be talking about that next week. That will be the primary topic of our entire episode. Though it is worth mentioning now that the assembly at Chester isn't going to make Penn's life any easier. The first order of business that came out of the assembly was the realization that, regardless if he had planned for it or not, true Quaker hegemony was not going to be in the cards for Penn. As discussed before, this was not empty land that he was landing on, and in fact there was a large Swedish and Dutch population that was not interested in becoming fellow friends. The assembly meeting in Chester would prove, however, to be a major event for the future history of the region. One of the most serious problems addressed at the assembly was the fact that, despite what Penn may have wanted, he was ultimately never going to be able to create a singular Quaker colony. This is especially true, as we've discussed, Delaware was decidedly not Quaker. The population living in the lower counties, what would become the future state of Delaware, had enough of an existing population that they were always going to command a presence in the Pennsylvania government. Indeed, the lower counties, through the Act of Union at Chester, were guaranteed representation, hence ending any hope of creating something akin to the Puritan colonies up in New England. However, before getting too caught up on this fact, a real argument exists that Penn never would have wanted anything like the situation in New England anyway, as we are going to see more next time when we start discussing the frame of government of Pennsylvania. Penn was a man always deeply concerned with religious toleration. There really is not much in the way of evidence that he ever planned to create something akin to New England in 1630. In fact, the evidence strongly suggests the opposite. Pennsylvania was always meant to be a safe haven for the Quakers, yes. It was a place where they could escape the persecution that they had experienced in England and in the colonies like the incident up in New England during the early 1660s. This is further supported by the fact that the very first thing we know that Penn did was promised those already living in the region that their religions would be protected. For Penn, there are likely numerous reasons why he was not seeking to set up a religious state like the Puritans had up in New England. 
Practically, there is the consideration that if we are to assume that Pennsylvania was meant to be a financial boon for Penn, then limiting the colony to only Quakers was going to do nothing but place an arbitrary limit on growth. A truly inclusive colony, with the freedom to practice religion as you want, is something that would be enticing to many wanting to avoid the often more repressive atmosphere in New England. Ultimately, this is what we see develop in Pennsylvania. Was there a large number of Quakers in the colony? Absolutely. Penn was always going to ensure that they would have a place where they could safely and openly practice their religion. However, Penn would ultimately be successful in his desire to establish a colony that, rather than being a strict Quaker colony, was a colony preaching religious tolerance. As a quick side note, I am dying to correct a misconception about William Penn that I have seen several times. Guys, I like William Penn and I want to give him all the credit I can. After all, this has basically been his episode. However, before we declare that the guy is the first one who brought the idea of religious tolerance to the American colonies, let's not forget about our friends up in Rhode Island. Pennsylvania is going to become a much larger colony than Rhode Island, basically overnight. However, Roger Williams still deserves a shout out here for having been preaching religious tolerance for decades by this point. It is during these early weeks and months in Pennsylvania that we also see the time as an introduction to William Penn himself of the political difficulties that he would experience in Pennsylvania. Well, the assembly would pass Penn's great law, something that we will talk much more about next time. Penn found that despite this being a new colony, he was already being thrown into a world of political rivalries. Penn rolled into his new holdings with a plan for the structure of government, but nearly immediately found that the conditions on the ground politically were less than conducive. This is going to lead to something of a split between what Penn had designed the government to look like and the actual final result that would be formed. Again, don't stress this for now. Next episode, we are going to be detailing the politics of early Pennsylvania. So again, we are just going to table this discussion. However, I did want to at least introduce some of the struggles that Penn is going to be up against when starting up the colony. Despite political tensions, Penn seems to have relished in the part of the job that included colonial planning. No place did this prove to be truer than in Penn's design of the city that he was preparing to found, Philadelphia. Penn, as a young man, lived in London when the city was devastated by a great fire. This would prove to be a pivotal moment in the life of the young William Penn. Following the fire, he had witnessed the literal rebuilding of London. Following that and seeing how the city could be rebuilt, Penn had a lifelong interest in city design. This would manifest in Philadelphia. Far from being the haphazard city whose layout was based on unpredictable and sporadic growth, Philadelphia was, more or less, a master-designed city. Philadelphia would quickly begin to grow and expand, and by the time 1750 rolled around, it would have the largest population of any city in the North American British colonies. Pennsylvania was further located at a strategically important spot within North America. Located between the southern colonies such as Virginia and the Carolinas and the northern colonies in New England and New York, Pennsylvania was in a position to be a trading hub virtually from its very conception. This is going to help to explain how a colony that is coming into the game relatively late is quickly going to grow to becoming a center of power within the North American colonies. We are going to leave our story here for now. Next time, 
we are going to spend our time looking at the politics of Pennsylvania itself. So many of the things that we are going to see enshrined in the federal constitution a century later can draw their roots back to Pennsylvania. So until next time, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here then to discuss the political structure of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania.